All right, if you have your Bibles this evening, go ahead and turn to the book of James. I know, I always get a hard time when I teach out of the book of James. People always say, that must be your favorite book of the Bible. And I say, well, what about it? Of course it is, all right? So uh, turn to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter number two this evening. Uh, before we get into the text, let's pray, ask the Lord to help us, and uh, I'm excited to share with you uh, from, this, from this text of Scripture tonight. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have spend the next few minutes in your word together. This is a great text, and uh, I'm excited to be able to share it. But, Father, I pray that you would help me tonight. Um, I don't want to manipulate. I don't want to arm twist. Um, what I really want to do, I, I want to be faithful to the text. I want to preach what you have me to preach. And so I pray that you would work, uh, work through me, uh, help me to say what you want me to say, and help me not to say what you don't want me to say. And uh, just lead me and guide me. Uh, help me to be spirit-filled as I, as I preach this evening. I pray that you would help us all to listen with open hearts and open minds. And uh, this is something that applies, I believe, to each and every one of us. So I pray that you help us to take the principles here. And then as we discuss later, help us to bring them and apply them in our Monday to Friday 9 to 5. You've told us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. And that's our goal this evening. So help us, lead us, guide us, give us the grace that we need. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, and in doing so, created a ripple that turned into a tidal wave as the Protestant Reformation swept across the nation, or the continent of Europe. And so individuals started reading the Bible in their own language and realized that salvation didn't come through keeping church tradition, but rather salvation came through justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Martin Luther became one of the faces of the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther's favorite epistle in the New Testament was the epistle of Galatians. Because that is Paul's magnum opus when it comes to the proclamation and defense of the gospel. And so when you read through the book of Galatians, it is explicitly clear that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And then Martin Luther came to the epistle of James. And he looked at the text that we're going to look at this evening, where it says that faith without works is dead. And after coming out of the traditionalism of the Roman Catholic Church, and after coming out of, uh, after coming out of a religion that says that you need to do certain things in order to earn God's favor, that really rubbed Martin Luther the wrong way. And he called the epistle of James an epistle of straw and struggled to reconcile the differences between these two New Testament books. Um, some have tried to argue that there are biblical inconsistencies between the epistles of James and Galatians. So some have said that Galatians teaches that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ and that James is teaching some kind of a different salvation that he's teaching some kind of a salvation where we have to do in order to earn God's favor rather than our salvation already being accomplished by the cross work of Jesus Christ. So how do we reconcile these supposed inconsistencies? Let me tell you, first and foremost, Scripture never contradicts itself. Scripture always agrees with itself, and we use Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. And when we understand the purpose and occasion of writing between these two different authors, it helps us to understand the different focus and the different emphasis that these two men, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, had while they were writing. So Paul is primarily writing to a pagan audience. When he's writing in the book of Galatians, he has come and he's led these individuals to Christ, individuals who don't have a whole lot of 
uh, if you would, like Judaism in their background, right? They're worshiping a plethora of gods and all these things. So Paul comes in and he teaches and he preaches and he leads people to Christ. And then as soon as Paul leaves, there's individuals who come in behind him and they say, hey, yes, you need to believe in Jesus to be saved, but it's Jesus plus something else. In the world of the New Testament, it was Jesus plus being circumcised in order to be saved. Jesus plus keeping the law in order to be saved. And there's a lot of Jesus plus messages that are still floating around in our world today. But James is writing to a little bit different audience. James is writing to an audience that is very familiar with Judaism. Very familiar with having an external form of godliness. Uh, an audience that's very familiar with uh, the religious establishment, so to speak. And yet, it's a group of people that, well, they had a form of godliness. There wasn't actually anything that was coming out of their profession of faith in God. And so James is writing to a different audience for a different purpose, trying to move people that are professing faith in Christ to actually demonstrate that there's something there. And that's what the text that we're going to look at tonight is all about. So it's not about, it's not about being saved by works. Rather, it's works as an evidence of genuine saving faith. So let's, let's read the text together. All right, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, it says this, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. I'm going to pull three very simple points out of this text tonight. First of all, I want you to see that good works are not a prerequisite of genuine faith. Good works are not a prerequisite of genuine faith. You guys know what I mean by the word prerequisite, right? When you're in college, and you go to take a 200 class, you can't take a 200 level class until you take the 100 level class. That is a prerequisite. There's something that you have to do first before you can move to the next level. When you and I get saved, there is not, good works are not a prerequisite. They are not required for genuine faith in Christ. Letter A there, salvation is always by grace through faith in Christ. There's one way to be saved. And that is to believe in the free gift of grace that God has given to us by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes this explicitly clear. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So good works then are the byproduct of saving faith, rather than the means through which saving faith is obtained. So if you were to go and look at the next verse in that passage, you have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But what does verse 10 say? After he says, not of works, lest any man should boast, he then goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, what? Unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So God saves us by grace when we place our faith and trust in him. And then God lays out a path before us. And now he is molding us and shaping us into the individual that he has called us to be. And good works are a part of that. 
but it's a byproduct of saving faith in Christ, not the means to obtain saving faith in Christ. Okay, so we need to be clear about that up front. Good works are not a prerequisite of genuine faith. But we also see here number two, and you're getting excited about how fast I'm moving through this, aren't you? Uh, letter two, or number two, number two. Good works are an outworking of genuine faith. Good works are an outworking of genuine faith. In verses 15 to 17, James talks about this. He lays out a scenario in front of us. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of food, somebody is coming and they have needs. And one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Now we need to understand, we've got to dig a little bit into the world of the New Testament. We've got to explore a little bit of the culture here. Okay, when somebody in James's day said, depart in peace, that was usually accompanied by some kind of a gift or an act of mercy, right? Either a financial gift or there was some kind of, there, there was something to accompany that. So it wasn't, just an, it wasn't just an expression, it was an expression that had an action attached to it. And so we need to understand that to understand the scenario that James is telling us here. It says, so you tell somebody, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things that they actually need. And then his question here is rhetorical. What does that profit? It's not a, it's not a hard question, right? It doesn't, doesn't do a whole lot of good. Right? Somebody doesn't have heat in their house and you say, oh, man, that's a bummer. Sorry. See ya. <laughs> doesn't, do them, it doesn't do them any good. Right? There's an act of mercy here that's needed, and the expression that James is using here would have normally would have indicated that some kind of a gift was going along with it. But James here said, listen, if we just come and we just give the verbal assent and say, hey, we say the right things, but there's actually no kind of action behind it to go along with it, it doesn't profit. It doesn't profit. And then he says in verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. So let me try to explain this quickly. Uh, believers in Christ experience two kinds of grace. Experience two kinds of grace. The first kind of grace is grace in. Grace in. This is God working for us and in us. The first time that you and I experienced grace in was at salvation. When the Holy Spirit of God opened our hearts and opened our minds to the truth of the gospel and made, paved the way for you and I to be able to accept Jesus Christ by faith. Okay, that's grace in. But grace in doesn't stop there. Grace in continues in our lives as we experience the habits of grace that God allows us to participate in. Things like Bible reading. Okay, things like participating in a community of faith like this, hearing preaching like we heard this morning, journaling, meditation, prayer. These are all habits of grace by which we are taking grace into our lives. These are streams of grace that God allows to flow into us. But there's a second kind of grace that believers experience as well. And the second kind of grace that believers experience is grace out. And this is God working through us. This is God working through us. So not only does God work for us and in us, but God then works through us. And you and I can't do this in our own strength. We can't do this in our own self-effort. God doesn't just save us and say, good, now you're saved and you're on your own. No, God saves us and then he leads us and give us, gives us the grace to be transformed into his image. Okay, Christianity is not a religion about do. Christianity is a religion that it is done. 
And Jesus Christ has saved us, and then he provides the grace for us to be able to be transformed into the image of his son. So there's grace in, and then there's grace out. Okay? And believers in Christ who are passionately pursuing after Jesus Christ experience both kinds of these grace. Grace in, God working for us. That's Philippians chapter 1. And we're, actually, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to the book of Philippians. There's a couple of good texts here. You shouldn't take my word for it. Let's look at the, let's look at the scripture together. We need to be like the Bereans and search the scriptures, right? Okay, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Okay, grace in. says this, being confident of this very thing, that he, God, which hath begun a good work in you. So at salvation, when Jesus Christ saved you, there was something that was started. It's the process of sanctification. That's the process of you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is grace in. God is continuing to work for you and in you. But then there's grace out. Same chapter, look down at verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and the praise of God. This is why I call this grace out. Because he said, be filled with the fruits of righteousness. But did you notice who is the one that's actually providing the fruits of righteousness for you to be filled with? Jesus Christ says the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. So God in his grace wants you to become like his son. And he is providing you with the fruit through which you can become like his son. So it's grace in and then it's grace out. So the question is, what's the peace? between grace in and grace out, okay? What's, what's the conduit where grace in is coming into our lives and then grace out is flowing through our lives? What's that, what's that middle piece? What's the conduit that connects those two things? Okay, it's faith. It's faith. Faith is the conduit between grace in and grace out. When I define faith for the kids, define it very simply as faith is taking God at his word, and acting upon it. Okay, faith requires action. Whenever I have a kid tell me, faith is believing in something that you can't see, I always correct them. Okay, because faith is not just believing in something that you can't see. Okay, we're going to get to that in verse 19. The devils also believe and tremble. Faith requires action. And when you and I take God at his word, there's grace that's coming in. When we take God at his word, it then requires us to do something. It requires action, and action then leads grace to flow out of our lives. And this series, this whole series that we're doing, talking through the book of James, is called Living by Faith. Or no, that's the morning series. This is called Real Life Theology, right? So, but both of those are good, and they both apply here. Right? So this is, this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of real life. Okay? And as grace comes in, we need faith in order for grace to flow out. So the question becomes, do we take God at his word and act upon it? Do you have grace flowing in? Do you have grace flowing out? Conduit, or faith is the conduit where those two things meet. Okay? Now, when we talk about faith, we need, also need to talk about the fact that your belief and your behavior are related. Your belief and your behavior are related. So what's coming in and what's coming out in your life, those two things connect to each other. 
Your belief, first of all here, your belief shapes your behavior. What you believe shapes what you do. Okay, so what I believe about God, what I believe about the church, what I believe about the Great Commission, what I believe about heaven and hell, and all of those things, they shape what I do on a daily basis. Okay, listen, if I, don't, if I don't believe that an individual is going to spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell, then I have no need to try to evangelize and reach the world for Christ. But if I believe that every person that I meet is going to spend eternity in one of two places, that should absolutely drive me and motivate me to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people. So our belief shapes what we do. Not only does our belief shape what we do, our belief then also drives what we do. So your belief kind of shapes your system, but then your belief also puts your system into practice. Puts your system into practice. Okay, so what you do matters. What you do matters. And you need to understand that what you do is indicative of what you believe. Okay, what you do is indicative of what you believe. So here's the challenge for most believers, myself included. Okay, I'm not teaching at you. I'm teaching to myself here because this is true of me. All of us, you know what? I won't even say all of us. I'll talk to myself. I have areas in my life where I say that I believe something and the way that I act is different. Okay, I do. I have areas. I'll give you, I, I think I've used this example before, but I'll tell you anyway. Right, so I believe that God is in control. I believe that God has everything under control and that he knows exactly what he's doing. And then I get on the sidelines in a soccer match, okay, and there are officials who don't know what they're doing. And what the officials do is they test my belief in a sovereign God, okay? And so if I believe, right, so what I say I believe and what I do on the sidelines, sometimes there's a gap between what I say I believe and what I actually believe. Okay, just being honest. So the challenge for you and I as believers of Jesus Christ, the process of sanctification is occurring as you and I actively work to close the gaps between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. Because the way that we believe shapes and drives what we do. So you and I have the responsibility to try to close the gaps between belief and behavior and that is where the process of sanctification happens. Okay? And that's where good works come into play. Because good works are an outworking of genuine faith. Okay? Good works are an outworking of genuine faith. So if you and I profess faith in Jesus Christ, if you were to go back one chapter in the book of James, uh, let me flip over there really quick. James chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, to keep himself from spotted from the world. Okay, so acts of mercy, okay, and then passionately pursuing after Jesus Christ and trying to do what's right. That's what I say I believe and what I need to do. What's the actual outworking? Does what we say that we believe match up with what we do? Our belief drives and shapes our behavior. Are there areas in your life where we need to work hard to close the gaps between belief and behavior. Okay, that's where sanctification happens. Now let's look here at number three. Good works are the proving ground of genuine faith. Good works are the proving ground of genuine faith. Verses 18 and 19. He says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, 
and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Hey, let me start by telling you this. I already gave you my definition of faith, but true faith is active, it's visible, and it's transformative. True faith is active, it's visible, and it's transformative. You go, Pastor was preaching through Hebrews 11 on Sunday morning. Okay, you go and read through Hebrews chapter 11 and tell me one thing that all, the, you want to know one thing that all those people had in common? They all did something. Okay, they all did something. Why? Because faith is active. Faith is active. It cannot be passive. Okay, that's why saying that faith is believing in something that we can't see is a bad definition of faith. Because faith requires action. Okay, it's necessitated in there. So if we say that we have faith, but we don't actually do anything with it, is, our, is it truly faith? Okay, that's the question here that he's asking. But then there's a hypothetical question that comes in here. An individual, so the picture is like say that, uh, well, Pastor Will always picks on you, Matt, so I'll just carry his tradition. Okay, so Matt Matthews is sitting right up here up front. Okay, so the picture that James has in his mind is Matt Matthews walks up here and he says, hey, Pastor James, okay, so you have, you have certain gifts in the church. Okay, you, you can do certain things. So why don't you do the things that you can do and I'll do the things that I can do and we'll just be happy doing the things that we're good at and that we're comfortable with and then we'll just, we'll just leave it there. So he said, hey, you, you might be good at the acts of mercy. Okay, I'm good, you know, just praying in my closet and, and doing that kind of thing and then like let's just do the things that we're good at. You do you and I'll do me and then we'll just, we'll be happy that way. And James says that that is not, that is not a way that the church should function together. That's not genuine faith in action. You know why? Because faith requires personal ownership. Faith requires personal ownership. That's letter B here. True faith requires personal ownership. You know, one, one area that we see this in the church sometimes is when it comes to the Great Commission. Um, some people say, hey, I love sharing the gospel with people. I could just go out and I could share the gospel with people and I could lead them to Christ. Great. Some people say, hey, I'm really good at teaching people and training people and doing the discipleship piece of it, and I'll just, I'll just do that. Okay, so some people can reach them and I'll train them, and then we'll all just be happy together. That's not what God has commanded us to do. That's not taking ownership of the mission that God has put in front of us. God has told all of us to be going and making disciples. Do you know what that includes? That includes the process of evangelism. And it includes the process of teaching and training other people to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. You and I have been commanded to go and evangelize. So we can't just look around our church and say, well, there's a couple of people that are good at that. So we'll just leave it to them. And then you might say, hey, it's, sometimes it's uncomfortable to sit across the table from somebody. Go one-on-one -on -one through a Bible study with them. Help answer questions. You might feel a little bit out of your depth sometimes. And you say, well, it's a little uncomfortable for me. I'm not sure that I want to do that. I'll let somebody else, I'll let somebody else do that. Right, there's people that are good at that. You know. But that's not taking personal ownership of the Great Commission that God has given to us. The picture that he says here is this is taking half responsibility of the mission that God has given to us. Okay? But obedience and working out our faith requires personal ownership. It requires personal ownership. Will you take personal ownership to work out Work out your own salvation. Actually, turn back there. I don't, I don't even think we looked at it. Turn back here to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2.
verses 12 and 13 say this, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is personal ownership. You and I have the responsibility to work out our faith. That means that we have the responsibility to be growing into the image of Jesus Christ. That means that we have the responsibility of fulfilling the Great Commission. That means that we have the responsibility to take somebody underneath our wing and say, follow me as I follow Christ. That means that we have the responsibility to lead people to Christ and to work hard to be evangelizing and building redemptive relationships with others. Work out your own salvation. But the encouraging thing is that you and I don't do it on our own. Verse 13 tells us, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So as you and I take ownership of the mission that God, is to, as God has given to us, as we seek to passionately pursue after Jesus Christ and grow in our relationship with him and fulfill the mission that he has given to us, we work, 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 work out your own salvation. There's spiritual sweat equity that's required here. And as we invest that, we understand that it's actually not us that's doing it at all. That's grace out. It is God that is working in us and then through us. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But it requires personal ownership from you and I. Requires personal ownership. And then finally here, I want you to see that genuine faith, when we talk about good works being the proving ground of genuine faith, true faith is not just intellectual agreement. True faith is not just intellectual agreement. He says this about the demons in verse 19. He says, hey, the demons, devils, they, they, they believe and they tremble. You know, demons have pretty orthodox, uh, pretty orthodox theology when it comes to their doctrine of God. They, they, know, they know who God is. They understand who he is, and they understand what their final reality is. They have, pretty good, they have pretty good doctrine. You know what the problem is? They don't put their doctrine into practice. It's not just an intellectual agreement. You and I can't just profess to believe things about Jesus. We can't just have a faith that talks. Genuine faith is faith that works. Genuine faith is faith that works. So it's not just an intellectual agreement. And if you and I say, well, how do we know that we have genuine faith? It requires us to put hands and feet to it. Faith without works is dead. There's a lot of people today in Christianity, conservative Christianity, that talk a lot. There's a lot less that actually put hands and feet to what they talk about. Our responsibility is to demonstrate the proving ground of genuine faith is what do we do with what we believe? What do we do with what we believe? All right, this is, this, is a great, this is a great text. I mean, this is one of like the iconic texts in the book. I couldn't believe Pastor Will let me teach this one on a Sunday night. I was excited about it. All right, so this is, but the challenge is, I mean, the challenge is super practical for all of us. What do we do with what we believe? All right, let's close in a word of prayer. We've got three discussion questions for you tonight. And then uh, what we're going to do is we'll split up into groups and we'll talk about some of this this evening. All right. And uh, I'm excited about that opportunity. Let's close in a word of prayer and then uh, and then we'll break up into groups. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend some time sharing the text tonight. So much more could be said. Um, this is a wonderful, a wonderful text. Thank you for the opportunity to, to open it, to preach it. I trust that I'm faithful to the text and that I'm faithful to what you want me to say. I pray that you would bless 
the next few minutes now as we discuss some of the things that we've heard, some of the principles and practices that are here. And uh, I pray that you would, you would help our discussion to be profitable, that you would help it to be positive, and that we can walk out the doors tonight with ideas about how to close the gap between belief and behavior, that we can walk out with, a, with additional clarity on how we can be active in putting hands and feet to our faith. Help us to not just be individuals that intellectually agree with doctrine. Help us to be individuals that put doctrine into practice. We'll give you the honor and glory for it because you're the one that deserves it. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.